couple of weeks ago that I needed to share a part of my story with our brothers and sisters here. I've shared this before with the wrong motivation, and my prayer tonight is that I can share it where God will get the glory, and it's really for him, his kingdom, and the part we all play in that. You can't sleep, just stay awake, don't go to sleep. Mike was pleading with me to stay conscious. I'm so tired, I struggled to form the words around a front tooth badly bashed in the space of my mouth where my tongue normally occupied. Mike insisted, I'm gonna find that ranger station at the top of the trail, don't go to sleep, you can't sleep, okay? You go. I'm good. I mumbled. Seven days before, we threw a 200-foot static line over the edge of an enormous boulder overlooking the south fork of the Platte River in Colorado Front Range, and about halfway down the undercut face, we ran out of rope. Mike went first and precariously dangling from the end of his rope, still 80 feet from the bottom, tied another 100-foot rope on the end and he worked the knot through his belay device and finished the rappel. Ignoring his advice to skip the descent, I went after him and was shocked to discover how far the knot was from the bottom as I worked the same knot through my belay device and completed the descent without an incident. I was absolutely convinced that my fearless bravado could bring me through anything. It's sort of ironic that Mike is telling me now not to sleep in this moment, because if I sleep, I might not wake up. Only three weeks before this, I fell asleep at the wheel of my dad's truck after a mountain bike race on Interstate 35 in North Austin. I woke up on the left rumble strip and overcorrected to the right, and then to the left, and then rolled his little Mazda twice before it landed rubber side down, still in the ditch, or still running in the ditch. The first time, upside down, it felt kind of like a roller coaster, but the second time, I felt my head hit the ground through the now crumpled roof and glass shattering in my face. I turned the truck off, thinking briefly how this engine was never going to turn on again, and I walked away with little more than a scrape. I remember picking windshield glass out of a thick kangaroo leather hat I wore that saved my head from more serious injuries on the way home, feeling invincible. At first, the state trooper didn't believe me when I told him I was the driver, until finally he started writing me a ticket, shaking his head, saying, son, you're lucky to be alive. The year before that, I dismissed a lesson I should have learned when I didn't use a bottom belay buddy and I fell 30 feet from a water tower in North Dallas. It was dark. I lost control of the rope and landed face down on a broken concrete sidewalk. A little confused, but unhurt. The next day I slept in and worked on a puzzle. Many opportunities to make better decisions had come and gone. And here I am, plastered, to a granite slab, face down, nearly dead, after a 70-foot free fall due to careless climbing mistakes 
a bad anchor, and a rushed decision. We were in National Forest territory, hours from a paved road. My survival depended on Mike. He carries me on his back while I hold on with my right hand over his chest, gripping my left wrist on the way out of a broad slot canyon where we've been climbing. He goes looking for help, and I'm all alone on this late afternoon, early summer of 1997. Mike ran several miles at 9,000 feet up and down peaks and valleys to find help in this little corner of Pike National Forest. First, he found a ranger who was only one year from retirement and unable to render much help. And then, running again, he found an unlikely group of 70 wilderness EMT trainees with all of their gear. He led them to me where they employed their backboard and other gear and carried me mostly by hand out of the backcountry. They carried me for nearly five hours through rough terrain, moderate forest, and eventually to the nearest gravel road. An ambulance drove me to a clearing where a helicopter could land and fly me to a Denver hospital. I remember landing on the roof of the hospital where it was now dark except for the landing lights. And I listened to the conversation between the EMT instructor who had been with me on the rock and the ground crew as the blades of the chopper churned over my head. I flinched on the stretcher, afraid they were going to hit me. Get a catheter in right away. We need to see if there's blood in his urine. He is likely internal bleeding, probably a lacerated liver, a punctured lung or collapsed broke from a broken rib, a concussion, which means brain damage, a broken back, broken elbows, a broken leg or legs. After an MRI, countless x-rays on a painful hard table and over a thousand stitches covering 24 hours of facial reconstructive surgery. I didn't have any internal bleeding. My lungs were intact. I didn't break any bones and as far as I can tell didn't incur brain damage. I remember waking up in the hospital the next morning with a pretty clear memory of the event and wanting to see myself in the mirror. I wasn't sure if I'd even be able to walk. I was able to gingerly slide out of bed and limp over to the sink. I almost fainted at the sight. I looked like a dead person. I shook my head, almost to confirm that it was me in the mirror, and for the first time felt a sense of fragility of my own life. An Arkansas rancher who knew me before and after the accident told me, God must have stuck an angel between you and that rock. I can only agree and thank God for his mercy, his long-suffering, his grace, and his unfailing love. God gave me not a second chance, but another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. Inwardly, I was thankful and knew God had intervened to preserve my life, but outwardly, I was still proud and for many years tried to make this story about myself. Growing up in Carrollton, my childhood was a middle-class, stereotypical, urban, suburban upbringing. I went to public school and until the 10th grade, 
where through my older brother found a private Christian school where I completed high school. God was important to me, but I had confined him to my own plans. It never occurred to me that his plan for my life might transcend everything else. Sometime around the 11th grade, I became obsessed with adventure sports and started buying gear and leaping into high-risk activities. There was a skate park in Dallas where I spent most of my weekends until I crashed and pulled all of the connecting tendons free from my thumb. It required surgery and a long recovery and a full arm cast. I spent less time at the skate park and picked up mountain biking and climbing. After high school, I went to college to study architecture and took up more freedom to take more risks. My college years were focused on racing bicycles and going to class. In the summers, I worked at a boy, as a boys counselor and maintenance crew at a, for a Christian camp called Woodbine Ranch on the front range of the Rockies, just west of Castle Rock, Colorado. Every spring, I looked forward to leaving my computer behind to clear weak pines from the vast hillsides, forested front range, ride my bike at elevation, and paddle the Platte River Valley, and sleep under the stars in the cool Colorado dry air. Among my appreciation for the outdoors was a delusional sense of instability that needed constant affirmation. This addiction caused me to jump off of objects, race bikes, and generally try things others were afraid of. In the winter of 1999, I met a new bike mechanic at the local shop. Her name was Krista. She rode with me a few times, and I asked her to apply for a girls' counselor position at the camp at Woodbine that summer. I felt like God had told me she was going to be my wife, and in the first three weeks of knowing one another, I told her. One night, while at a camp sitting atop a locally known rock pile called Cathedral Rock, I proposed, and it turns out God was speaking to her too. She said yes. She told me the best way to meet most of her family was in the fall at a fair event in Waco where her aunts and uncles that lived around Texas often convene once a year. One of Krista's aunts is Sister Regina, and often at the annual fair, the whole family would catch up with one another. Through some dear friends in high school, Krista began her Christian walk, which invoked a curiosity about Homestead, but she was unsure of how she felt given visible differences one notices upon meeting people in the community. Her parents were openly positive about the place, but simultaneously unsettled, so Krista never really examined how she felt about the community. I grew up in a Christian home, and while I deviated from foundational life convictions in college, Deep down, I wanted to align with a Christian lifestyle. A Christian community was fascinating to me. It reminded me of the camp I loved so much in Colorado. I wanted to understand how it worked and why it was different than other Christian groups I had encountered in the past. I had many questions. I met most of Krista's extended family that first day at the fair and found one particular young man named Ossie that was easy to talk to and happy to field my questions. Young Ossie is Krista's cousin, and he grew up at Homestead. He understood the life, and he was 12. So I was not intimidated by his answers or worried about offending him with my questions. <laughs> I was 21, physically recovered from my climbing accident, and looked a little different than the people in the community. I had a pierced cartilage in my upper left ear, 
with a heavy gauge ball tip earring and kept bushy sideburns. Without much introduction, one can gather the community is serious about their faith, aspires for self-sufficiency, and generally seems uninterested in popular uh, culture. My questions sort of hovered around these obvious anomalies. Have you ever seen a movie? Can you refrigerate food without electricity? <laughs> Do you believe having the Holy Spirit is connected to speaking in tongues? Aussie answered each question openly, but when we got to the Holy Spirit, he knew the answer was big and more meaningful than the others. He simply said, you need to talk to my dad about that. He wasn't embarrassed to tell me he'd never seen a movie, but he wasn't bragging. He seemed interested in my life and was happy to share his with me. I was impacted for sure, but I didn't recognize the earnest hope God had planted in my heart that weekend. There were many things pulling from my allegiance, and I was bursting to start my adult life with my soon-to-be bride. Chris and I were married that same year in December of 1999 and returned to Homestead for the Y2K New Year's, now newlyweds. Homestead felt like a break from reality and a great place to visit while we were on our honeymoon. I was full of personal ambition for adventure, economic success, early retirement. Homestead seemed a little like a bubble, and inside was a fantastical place for people with a small understanding of the great big world not really relevant to my reality. Quickly returning to my reality, I needed to graduate college and find a job. Krista and I spent our first year anniversary in a U-Haul driving across the Mojave Desert, moving our belongings to Northern California. I was going to have the dream job of working for a bicycle company near the mountains, and Krista found her dream job of managing an enormous greenhouse, and we bought a little house in Gilroy, California, just east of the coastal range, near Santa Cruz, Half Moon Bay, Carmel by the Sea. We spent the weekends walking along the beach, riding our bikes on coastal trails, snowboarding in Tahoe, paddling the American River. In 2002, Krista became pregnant with her first child, and a new pool for our attention appeared when she gave birth at a hospital in Gilroy to Noah in the winter of 2003. I remember a very attentive red-headed nurse checking on Krista, doing her best to make sure we understood what was happening. But her 48-hour labor was the most miserable, draining, and terrifying experience of my life. I was troubled at how helpless I felt, how cold and lifeless it felt to be in a hospital to have children. But I was glad it was over and just tried to forget Suddenly, my big hopes and dreams and ambitions seemed silly now that this little tiny person needed care, training, stability, relationship. Worse, I didn't know how to provide any of those things. Chris and I immediately felt uneasy with the idea of daycare itself. I started looking for a new job, and the luster of the outdoor industry wore off after just barely being apart working and playing with 30-year-old kids and their social drama didn't seem important when I needed to learn how to be a father. Being around people with the same values that live and work and play together in deep relationship appealed to me from my time at camp, 
Returning to the closest community experience I knew, I found a Christian camp in New Mexico that needed a maintenance man. After visiting the camp and feeling like this was the answer, Kristen and I sold our little house in Gilroy and moved to Capitan, New Mexico. In only a few weeks, Kristen and I lamented the decision we had made. We found ourselves just as fragmented with our fellow camp staffers as we did with our non-Christian friends we had in California. Character problems among longtime staffers were dismissed as personality differences. Everyone lived their own vision of their own faith and their own Christianity. At the time, we were not able to articulate this, but we know now our disappointment was, was in the lack of close relationship, disciple, and wholeness, and community. We were miserable. I began looking for a new job, and this time my dreams and ambitions, community aspirations, receded to a mere whisper as I focused on just finding work that could support my wife and child. I found work in Austin, and we moved again in Christmas of 2003. After a few months back in Texas, and with the help of family, we regained our footing and built a little track home in South Austin. Work progressed, and we had our second child in the fall of 2005, Wyatt. I conformed to the prototypical office life of business meetings, trade shows, regular hours, and periodic travel. I soon became a suit with many frequent flyer miles. I settled, and I didn't consider community again. except once a year at the fall fair. We would connect with the cousins in Waco. And Krista and I would have hopeful what-if conversations on our drives back to Austin. In 2007, an internet gossip, gossip website published horrifying cultish stories about Homestead. <laughs> Some things do not change. <laughs> you know what the devil means for evil, the Lord means for good. I was conflicted over the positive relationships and experiences I had with many people there and the criminal claims people were making about the community. I called the closest friend I had there, Brother Dan, and I asked him if we could meet. We met at a small cafe in Georgetown where I finally asked questions that peered through the external observations that I had not ventured beyond since 1999. We started with, what do you feel about salvation? How do you define the grace of God? What is your view of the Holy Spirit? How is it different than mine? And how is all of this pulled together in scripture? I was settled that the internet gossip was slander, and for the first time, I began to wonder if this people was more deeply thoughtful, consistent, big picture, and inspired than I had previously assumed. For many of us here, that's a little silly, isn't it? Following that conversation and the continued relationship, I began to feel like the reality I knew in work and suburban life was unsustainable in more ways than I had previously understood, while my friends in Waco were living a sustainable reality, intentionally participating in the activities that support life. Seeing the contrast was troubling, and something in me wanted to change. We were beginning to see the unique value of the community in Waco. They had already pioneered an injection 
from many cultural norms, including public school, that were making us feel trapped. The alternative lifestyle there felt less fantastical considering the decisions we were now facing. I realized I had made an immature and arrogant 21-year-old judgment in 1999 about their small worldview. I was a few months into an exodus. They had begun over 35 years before that gave birth to a community and a culture. During the summer of 2008, God spoke to us to connect with the nonprofit foster adoption agency, which required us to enroll in the state foster care system where we would have opportunity to care for and possibly adopt children. Krista's doctor said that she might not be able to have any more children. In 2009, we completed the classes and were given two little boys, a newborn straight from the hospital, Jaden, and his older brother, Zach, who, like Wyatt, was three. The boy's mother was 17 and a product of the foster care system herself. Her mother was a drug user, and she was as well, now facing possession and endangerment charges. Chris and I worked to reach out to her and care for her children while watching the state spend thousands of dollars on multiple attorneys, child protection services, translators, bailiffs, judges, and foster parents, only the witness, only to witness in the case of our, in, in our case, the cycle continue generation after generation. This experience became a heartbreaking example of our broken culture and how the systems in place are unable to restore it. About a month after we began to care for the foster children, despite our doctor's prediction, Krista became pregnant with our third child. During this period, God revealed to me that love is an intentional choice that after learning to love these little boys that were not ours, we were going to lose them. In the fall of, 99, of 2009, while attending a Friday night meeting, I experienced God in a way that cleared up my questions about the Holy Spirit. I testified that I needed and wanted the Holy Ghost in the way Homestead had it and began to pray. First, I fell to my knees and then lunged face down on the floor. I believed in God. I had hoped so badly, so badly, that his promises were true. I wanted to know him and for him to know me. And for the first time, I no longer hoped. I knew it was true, all of it, and that it was for everyone. I felt as if everything God had ever revealed to me before, Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his salvation, and his relationship with man was true. And behind it was a curling wave of things that had not been revealed but were true as well. It seemed like a flash where everything I knew of God came to my mind at once and was confirmed by a presence so big and powerful that I still tremble when I consider the height and the depth of the love of God. I felt compelled to embrace the truth confirmed and begin to seek what had not been revealed with all my heart. Even with the culture unraveling around me, I had hope of something greater, and I began to open my life to the ministry at Homestead, earnestly seeking how this people I had so quickly dismissed exactly 10 years before could become my people and their God, my God. 10 months into caring, caring for Zach and Jaden, the state sent the boys home, first the three-year-old and then the baby to their biological mother before Christmas of 2009. 
Continuing on the path before us, Krista and I connected with the midwife in Austin to deliver our third child, and Krista's cousin, sister Amanda, offered to attend as well. In 2010, we gave birth to Sam at a birthing center that looked more like a bedroom than a medical facility, and it was one of the most enriching experiences of our lives. We felt less connected to our church friends in Austin who seemed aggravated we didn't send our little ones to daycare and uninterested in homeschooling, which we had started with Noah. I felt helpless with the church youth teens. We're so focused on social status and outward images, there was nothing left for God to capture. I felt ineffective trying to support my neighbor. His wife had just left, the, left him and, and, and took their two children. My reality was proving to be a rubble, a mound of rubble deteriorating with her culture. But I had already tried jumping ship in 2003. I gave up a good job. I sold a comfortable house. I left everything to follow a dream, but it didn't work. I was afraid to do it all over again. How was this different to the exodus we made when we moved to the high desert of New Mexico? Shortly after Krista gave birth to Sam, we became pregnant with number four. Krista and I were now driving to Waco every Friday for church and felt our life in Austin was beginning to close. Nervous and still apprehensive from our experience before, we listed the house and began to prepare for another baby, figure out logistics of moving and work. One Friday night meeting cleared up everything for me in a similar way to the encounter I had with God the year before. Sister Amanda shared about a meeting she had with an old man. He was a wealthy man, one of Waco's few billionaires. He was aging and had a, various, a very honest conversation with Amanda. He explained how the many accomplishments of his life, including the millions of dollars he had donated to nonprofit organizations, the accolades, the awards, and the recognitions he'd received over the years felt empty. They weren't accounting to anything transcendent, and he was reaching the end of the road for his own life. Natural things were suddenly unappealing. What was eternal that he could cling to, and why at the end was he just now seeing things for their true value? As I listened to her retell the conversation, I realized my greatest dreams and ambitions were a far lesser scale than this man's actual accomplishments, and yet they were still part of the same empty road. I felt compelled to complete the exodus we'd begun several years before to make a break from our suburban life into a new kingdom, a new burden, and a new dream. This dream would be led by God's hand, his spirit, and that would be the difference. I shared in that meeting how I was on the same road as that old man, even though I knew I would never attain the financial success or status. I needed to break free of my old ways of thinking and make this people my people. And just before I burst into my confession, Brother Mark Broman read a scripture about how the new wine needs new wineskins. And if you put new wine in old wineskins, the new wine will rupture the old skins. I knew that this scripture was for me, and I asked the group in that meeting to pray for me to make everything new. I wanted to be a part of his kingdom, and it felt like God's kingdom for my family was connected to this people. Our extended family could see the direction we were heading. We were making many changes that were visibly apparent. They could see more changes would be coming and were unsure if we were headed in the right direction. But what about the weekends at the lake house? What about movies and TV? And what was so bad about the good old American dream? 
Many Christians and many churches around the world don't feel the need for such exclusivity. These subjects involve much discussion between Krista and I and the community leaders and our families, and in the end, we felt like God had something more fulfilling than all of these things surrounding our life. We press toward the call of baptism and a full membership to this beloved community. I gave up the partnership stake I had in a company I worked in Austin. I found a sales rep job that allowed me to work from home selling metal panel. We found a house in Waco and made an offer to buy it. And the young woman who owned it, Sarah Reed, was a single mother and became a friend through the contract and purchase process. The weekend we made our final offer, she received a competing offer at a higher price. She called her father in Maine for advice. He asked her, what do you feel like you're supposed to do? And she responded, I feel like I'm supposed to sell it to this family in Austin. Well, that's what you need to do, he concurred. We felt a special connection to her, and through our friendship, she expressed interest in our unfolding journey to be a part of the community. She accepted an invitation to join us at the annual Easter program in 2011. As we drove together on the community land and through the craft village and past the cafe and down to the lower farming fields near the river, Sarah had never seen the community before. She was bewildered seeing the pastures, watching people tend their gardens and walk with their children. As we neared the loafing shed, packed with horse implements, she blurted out, how do I become a part? She soon began her own journey to become a part of Homestead the next year. We are still overwhelmed at how our decisions and actions to follow God help others to do the same. In the spring of 2011, we moved into our little farmhouse just a few miles from Homestead and gave birth to our fourth child, Tobin at home and officially joined the church. We, didn't, we had three acres but didn't know anything about farming and the house was in need of much repair. Living sustainably begins with living ordered and sustainable relationships so you can build generational sustainability. But it includes practical sustainability. Raising livestock, growing a garden, preserving food is all a part of this new life we were feeling to build. It seems silly but we started with four chickens. That fall, I dug up the backyard and began preparing for a spring garden. The next spring, we tried 20 chickens and planted the garden. In the summer of 2012, someone in the community gave us their family goat. In the fall, we bred it and raised two bucks. Later in 2013, we tried raising and shearing alpacas, raised more goats, increased to 50 chickens, fixed up the house and stabilized the water well system, repaired fences, and started a design and construction company with Brother Caleb and Brother Matt Branstad. Also, in 2013, we had our fifth child, and this time a girl. We named her Lindy Abigail, which means joy of the father. I pulled out a list that I wrote when I was eight years old. It was called Things to Do Before I Die. And number five in little eight-year-old handwriting is have a daughter. In our second year of farming, learning how to kid goats and raise chickens and keep a garden and preserve food, we sat down for a meal and realized that everything on the table the Lord had provided from our own farm. Natural sustainability was possible even for us. 
Today we have eight children, five boys and three girls, five of which were born in our little farmhouse in Waco. They help care for our working family farm, milking goats and milking cows and collecting eggs. As I watched the six little ones holding hands and touring the front pecans and peach trees this afternoon, I was in awe at what God had given while they played and laughed and enjoyed one another. As we witnessed the fruit of those that have gone before us and the experience of the budding fruit from just the last 10 years, a much broader goal of generational sustainability has become a reality. Over the years, others have come, many with the same needs, the same fears, and their own story of redemption. As we build relationships with them, their lives change like us, and they discover the joy of being a part of another kingdom, a city set on a hill where its peace and government have no end. When I travel, I'm reminded of the culture from which I came. I recognize, in one sense, I live in a bubble. But it is not a fantasy. It is a reality where I am learning to give room for God, the God of creation, to speak to my heart and conform my life to something better than I could have ever built for myself. Sometimes I think about that summer afternoon in 1997 where I know I should have died in the wilderness. I am overwhelmed with gratitude when I think about how instead God led me on a journey to find him and allow me to experience a bit of the promised land on earth. This is my story. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. And where you are buried, I'll be buried. Amen. Waited, and I waited on you, Lord. And you bent over me, and you heard my cry. You brought me up from a dangerous pit, from a deep and miry clay. And you set my feet on a rock to steady my way. Many will see it. Oh, many will see it. Oh, many you will see and trust the Lord. Sing it over. Many will see it. Oh, many you will see it. Oh, many. Does not turn to strange, I am 
Many who will see and trust the Lord.